Investment Talk Podcast, Episode 8. Interview with financial expert, Tim Byers. Hello and welcome to the Tune and Talk Podcast, your rendezvous for animation interviews. I am your host, Whitney Grace, and as always, I am grateful that you have downloaded us today. Today's guest is a little bit different from our usual round of voice actors, animators, and anyone with an interesting story to tell about the animation industry. Today's guest is Tim Byers, a financial expert who writes for The Motley Fool about all economic and financial things related to geek fandom. And when I ran the Animation Interviews podcast over with the Rotoscopers, shout out to them, I had Tim on the show and we predicted which movies would be a success and failure for the 2014 film year. And I enjoy talking to Tim so much that I wanted to do the same thing for 2015. So you might be thinking it's a little bit late to predict which movies are going to be successful in 2015. But the thing is, is animated film season, it has barely even started. We've only had two come out this year, Home from DreamWorks and the SpongeBob SquarePants movie from Nickelodeon. On a side note, both of them are really fun movies. If you had the chance to see them, go do it. But the bigger movies that come from the major studios, Disney, DreamWorks, well, another DreamWorks movie, Pixar, and several others have yet to come out. And most of the time, that is because they are released during summer vacation and also the winter holidays when there's another vacation season coming up. And there are a lot of really big movies being released this year. Two from Pixar, the Peanuts movie, and, well, I'm not going to spoil the interview for you. At the end of Tim and I's interview for 2015, what I did is, as a bit of extra fun, I added my prior interview with Tim when I ran the Animation Interviews podcast over on Rotoscopers. Shout out to them. Why don't you take a listen to that and see whether he and I predicted correctly who would be the winners for 2014. So without further ado, uh, well, just a little bit more ado. We have a few housekeeping things. We have a brand new sponsor for the show. As you know, I am writing a book about Lotta Reiniger, the animator of the first animated movie ever made called The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. And while I'm writing, the writing process can be very difficult. You have to keep all your sources organized as well as your chapters, your novels, your ideas. And that can be really stressful. I have found a program called Scrivener that was developed to help writers finish their first draft. It was specially developed by a company called Literature and Latte, and their entire goal is to help people get their writing done. And this product has been used by many authors. It has gotten rave reviews, and it's a really good piece of software. 
And I'll post a link in the show notes so that you can learn a bit more about how to get Scrivener and learn more about literature and latte and how that they can help you finish your own novel or nonfiction book. I also plan to add a bit more content to TuneInTalk.com in the next few weeks, especially focusing on book reviews about, well, animation. I love reading. I love animation. When you combine the two, I cannot be happier. I also plan on posting a few more articles that I've written for other websites and just a few other interesting tidbits. So please keep tuned for that. So now... Without further ado, here is my interview with Tim Byers. So, Mr. Tim Byers, you've been a guest on the podcast before, though it was under a different name. Could you tell us a bit more about who you are again and what your expertise is? Okay, sure. Um, well, it's it's great to be back here. Um, yeah, I am. Uh, I cover the business of of comics and genre entertainment, and that includes animation. So, um, I kind of focus on a particular portion of the niche. I look at the box office, and I look at sales, and I look at marketing. And um, since I'm a business reporter by trade, uh, that's and uh, this is all stuff that I really like. I kind of merge the two worlds in a, in a way that sort of works for me. So I, I'm a freelance writer by day, and then I also run a site called The Full Bleed uh, that is part of a, a small network of uh, genre blogs that we kind of teamed up and called The Geek Initiative, and that will... Well, uh, that will launch formally on, on Star Wars Day, but if you want to find out more about what I'm doing in that area of the world, it's just thefullbelieve.net. So lots of good stuff on what's happening in the, the, the business world of comics, genre, entertainment, and animation. Wonderful. That sounds like something I want to be a part of, too. I hope so, yeah. I, I've had a, a, an interesting... Uh, an interesting start to it. It's almost a year. This summer will be a year of it. So, yeah, good stuff. Wonderful. So, let's see. Since you are an expert in animation and all things geek, what I wanted to talk to you about this time around was the same as last year, and that was your predictions on what animated movies would be a success. Yeah, right. Let's discuss some of the animated films coming out this year. We have some big ones. We had Inside Out. And yeah. a few more of them escape me, but they there's, are going to be really big. Yeah, there's seven of them that, I mean, that are, you know, American animation. Of course, animation is a global business, but the, the ones that I have, um, and this is in no particular order, but actually I guess we could call it six because Underdogs is from 2014, and that's a kind of the Weinstein Company bringing it, a, you know, into American theaters this summer. But... Um, you have Minions, you have Inside Out, uh, the Peanuts movie later this year, The Good Dinosaur right around the, the Christmas season, uh, Hotel Transylvania 2, and Monster Trucks. And so every major studio, with the exception, ironically, um, I, you know, not much DreamWorks action here, although 
Um, you know, DreamWorks always gets distributed. DreamWorks Animation always gets distributed by Disney. So stuff that looks like it comes out from Buena Vista or Disney sometimes is a a, a um, is a DreamWorks film. So, like for example, Disney made money and makes money on the How to Train Your Dragon films. But of this uh, of this list, the one that I think is is the pick. Uh, is Minions, but Inside Out is really close. Why do you pick Minions over Inside Out? I mean, Pixar has generally a very good box office run. Even some of the movies that weren't as successful still were a success. Because they've been, um, they've, I don't want to say they've been on the decline because that's not necessarily true, but the the box office yield uh, of Pixar films has declined in recent years. They've had uh, some some good hits, but really the the winner over at the the House of Mouse hasn't been Pixar. It's all been Disney Animation. The big winners there um, have been Disney Animation films. They've taken the goodness of the old Pixar, put that into new Disney Animation films, cause so they have that look. So like Frozen has the look, but it's not a Pixar film. Big Hero Six has the look. Not a Pixar film. Those are Disney animation films. And they've done exceptionally well and even more so than Pixar films in recent years. Um, and I think that goes back to Wreck It Ralph. Yeah, Wreck It Ralph was, um, no, I kind of, it took me by surprise about how successful it was. I mean, I thoroughly yeah. enjoyed the movie, but, but I didn't expect it to be as good as it was. And then that built up for Frozen. So, there right. You go. Right, yeah, and so I mean, Disney Animation is is a machine right now. They're doing incredibly good work. This is the first year in a while that Pixar has come out with two films. They'll have two films this year, so this really should be Pixar's year. Not necessarily because Inside Out will just blow everybody's doors off, although that's possible. Um, I don't think it will happen, but it is possible. But mostly because you've got two films. You've got the summer tentpole and Inside Out, and then you've got the November uh, entry with uh, The Good Dinosaur, which is typically where Disney Animation plays. Disney Animation usually shows up in that November, early December time slot. Uh, this year, Pixar has it. Okay. Yeah, Pixar, I'm really astounded that they're actually doing two. I know they want to uh, bump up their production schedule. But having two movies in one year, that's just astounding. And I just hope that uh, they are still as good quality as the story. And the animation, of course, I know is going to be great. I just hope the story sure. has not suffered because of they've had to speed up the production. Yeah, and they, and in the case of The Good Dinosaur, remember, that's one that's been delayed. And yeah. so that was supposed to go last year, and it didn't for a variety of reasons that Disney really hasn't gone into. But there are, you know, some concerns that they just didn't get the story the way they wanted it to, or they didn't, they didn't crack the nut, you know, the way they, the way they wanted it to, didn't have the right personnel, whatever the reasons. Uh, the Good Dinosaur shows up this year because it didn't go last year. That's really the only reason. Um, but I want to get to, you know, you asked, you know, how could I pick Minions over Inside Out? The reason, I think, is because sequels have a way of consistently earning higher if they have a, a track record of pleasing audiences, if they've drawn what's called a good cinema score so that they had a, a lengthier run in, in the theater at the box office. 
Uh, most of the time, the box office is is made. You, and most movies get two weeks. They get two weeks to make back most of their money, ninety percent of it. And uh, if they if they do it, if or if they exceed that target, then they earn extra weeks. Um, and that's really good. Theaters want films like that. Cineplexes really want films like that because that's where they make their money. You know, those first two weeks, they make it all on concessions. Almost all of that money is going to the studio and the distributor. Uh, almost none of it is going to the Cineplex. So if you have a film like a Minions, which is based on a very successful franchise now in uh, Illumination and, and Universal teaming up with the Despicable Me franchise, uh, you know, every theater is going to put as much muscle behind that locally as they can because that's a that's a good money-making opportunity for them locally. It's the kind of film that can last for, say, six, seven weeks in a theater run, and so now the theater isn't just making money on concessions. Now they're making money on tickets, too. And that's rare. That doesn't really happen. For a family film in particular, that doesn't happen nearly enough. Now, Inside Out looks like it's going to be a blockbuster. Uh, a lot of people love it. The social buzz looks good. My kids can't wait to see it. It also has the classic Pixar imprimatur of uh, take a concept that, you know, we like, huh, that's kind of cool. I didn't really think about that. Where, like, you know, what if there was an alternate universe where monsters were friendly and scaring was just like to keep the lights on, Monsters, Inc.? Or, you know, a family that has, you know, typical family problems, but they're superheroes, the Incredibles. And so Inside Out is like, what if emotions were little people? You know, I mean, it has that classic you know, Pixar uh, sensibility of it. And so it really looks like it's going to hit. But uh, Minions are adorable, and they sell. So I would pick Minions. Yeah, Minions, they are hilariously funny. I love them a lot. Um, I think Bradley D. Baker does the voices for those. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and he's just hilarious, and he does every single one, and all he does is he does a few things to warp his voice, and you don't really see uh, voice actor talent like that rise to the top as it is in this movie. Most of the time they do have celebrities in the main spots, and while celebrities, they do a good job, it's nice to see a experienced voiceover artist do it. And, and I, I would absolutely agree with that. I'd also say that they really are highly underrated uh, actors. I mean, hey, you mentioned a good one in, in Dee Bradley Baker, but like John DiMaggio or Maurice LaMarche, those guys are geniuses. I mean, I, they, they really are. It's, it's amazing what they can do. Um, and I, you know, it's nice when they get a chance to sort of showcase their, their skills like that. Um, and, and the minions is one of those rare animated films where they can just, you know, they, you know, guys like that can just play unless you're talking about some of the genre entertainment, you know, pictures like, you know, the DC animated movies, then you have like, uh, you know, John DiMaggio, like doing the Joker and doing crazy things and like, you know, the new DC animated films. So they get to play in those areas because Andrea Romano, who's the voice, you know, director for a lot of those films, uh, she is usually appreciative of the talent that they can bring. And so she uses them a lot. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love to see the voice actors just shine. They just, I mean, they know how to act without being seen, and that always comes across in their performances. Yeah, and it's a that's I I don't know how they do it. It's a very tough skill to to master. So they they deserve the kudos they get. They frankly don't get enough kudos. So it, it's it's good to you know when they get a chance to shine for sure. Agree. What do you think will be the least successful? I you know I'm gonna go with and I know this. I'm not sure that this is going to be a, a, a popular pick, but I'll say um, Hotel Transylvania two. Because I think there's I think there's enough juice in the Peanuts movie that that's coming from Fox. Like that's a, historically there's enough love for that franchise that I think it'll do okay. I do not think it's going to blow the doors off by any means. But uh, Hotel Transylvania, the original, did pretty well. Um, if I remember right, it was like an $85 million production budget, so solid, right in that first, you know, right in that same Illumination Entertainment, you know, wheelhouse, even though it's, it's different guys. Um, Sony really, I mean, they badly want an animated franchise. This is their shot. They had some success with the first film. But this is also what I like to call franchise hunting where it's not necessarily built for a franchise. It was a good film, but does it really deserve to be made into a franchise? I'm not so sure. So I would have to say that this one probably um, risks a little too much. And Sony is just desperate for, for franchises. You might know this, too. Just recently, they were talking about, and apparently they've announced this now, there will be, I believe it's 2017, a Spider-Man animated film. So now, even though they're going to do live-action collaboration with Disney and with Marvel Studios, they still have rights to do animated Spider-Man, whatever they want. Um, and so they can go out and do an animated movie. So they, Sony, in particular, is one of those studios that's been hunting for an animated franchise. Hotel Transylvania is is their hope. I'm I'm not optimistic that one's going to work as well as they want it to. What I find interesting um, about Hotel Transylvania is, I mean, I'm looking forward to that one. Um, it was a very successful underdog in many ways because, I mean, it kind of concept was a little out there, and it did play on the love at first sight kind of thing, but they sure. did do a good job of making it funny, of making it original, and then they had Gennady Tarkovsky behind Tarkovsky behind it. And Gennady, no matter what Gennady gets his hands on, he always does an amazing job. Mm-hmm. Now, with Peanuts, I think they're going to do an awesome job with it. Um, looking at the animation of Peanuts, I'm already astounded by just how amazing it looks. Uh, when I heard about a 3D Peanuts movie, I was thinking it would look like Macy's uh, Thanksgiving Day balloons, but it's mm-hmm. really amazing how much they've paid tribute to Charles Schultz over the work, and they've just updated it to make it a bit more colorful and jump out on the screen at you. So I think that's going to be good. Now, I'm going to vote that monster trucks won't do that well because, frankly, I haven't read a lot about it. I don't even know who's doing it. And when I have heard it, I've heard some people say that it just might play off of cars. 
Yeah, and I, I, I that one I, I thought about, but I think it's so early and there's so little information that I, it's, it's hard for me to pick that. That's a the classic. I mean, it, it's there are animated films that can surprise with tiny budgets or just because they they come out of nowhere that that can happen. So I wouldn't be surprised if that does happen. It's distributed by Paramount, so um, you know Paramount has you know, a, a long history of movies, certainly done lots of different animated works over the years, but in recent years, they haven't been, you know, one of the, the big dogs per se. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it could happen. I, the only reason I really picked, you know, Hotel Transylvania 2 is because I'm wary of forcing franchising, and that feels a bit like forcing franchising, but I, I'd love to see it work, because you're definitely right. It's it's great when a, a concept that isn't obvious uh, works out, and that was certainly the case with the first film. Yeah, and I always love being taken by surprise with animated films because, well, going back to Wreck-It Ralph, I didn't think that would be as successful. Yeah, but right. I know, and then they had all these gaming reference, and they had a lot of nostalgia, and they had a lot of original things, and so it was just... Awesome. Playing yeah, around it, in that world for a long time. Absolutely. I mean, it, it surprised a lot of people, and it was delightful and, and interesting, and they didn't uh, – yeah, uh, it was a – I don't want to call it, like, the feel-good movie of the winter, but that year it kind of was, you know, and it, they had some terrific actors in it, too. John C. Riley always does a, an interesting job in whatever he does, and he was perfect for that role. He was perfect mm-hmm. to play Ralph. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wonder, I wonder how much of that was ad-libbed. Because I do, too, yeah. Because <laughs> some of those things, you're like, no, nobody wrote that. That was just off the top of someone's head. But yeah. I don't know the writers personally, but so whoever did any of that, good job, all of you. <laughs> so what are you most excited about? Me, I'm... I'm going for, I'm really excited about Inside Out and The Good Dinosaur because I'm just a Pixar person at heart. How about you? I'm most excited for Minions because I love the Minions uh, so much. They make me laugh like crazy. And, you know, that's a chance for me. My kids look, you know, sideways at me when, you know, I I go to those films because they really do make me laugh. But my kids are just absolutely dying to see uh, Inside Out. They think that's going to be great. And I I agree with them. I I think it's going to be great. I you know, if if I was reading the Zeitgeist, it could very well be that that Inside Out just blows everybody's doors off, and it would be interesting. Um, but man, you know what a setup for Disney. I mean, I, I, I guess that's the other piece of this. I'm also excited to see what happens with Disney with the number of properties they are releasing, and some of which we're just forgetting are out there. This is becoming quickly the studio to be, you know, they, they did, the House of Mouse is becoming the mother of all Hollywood studios right now. And it didn't used to be that way, but considering all the properties they're putting together, it is really quite something. I know. I mean, I am, Disney, I can say when Disney wants to, 
and they have a good budget, they do an excellent job most of the time. Uh, but when they don't care, uh, they, they, they don't do it. It's evident when they don't care. But it makes me wonder if they're going to get complacent and just some of their movies because they're going to do it. They're doing a good job right now at the Marvel because the fans, they love it. But it just makes you wonder, will they continue to care or will it just be something that they go on down the line saying, okay, we can just slap a Marvel title on it and the Marvel fans will come out. You know, the reason I, I think we're not at that point yet is because they could have very easily done that with animated Marvel films. And they've been slow and deliberate to do that. And I think part of that is because they haven't cracked a nut yet and they know it. And also because their main competitor, Warner Animation, is really good at it. And they don't want to throw something out there and have it look like a second-class project. Uh, Because if they do that, they, they, it'll take a while to get a second chance. You're absolutely right. So that kind of makes me worried about some of the sequels coming out because some of these are kind of a second chance to reboot some of these franchises. I mean, uh, Hotel Transylvania, that was a good franchise. And Peanuts, well, Peanuts isn't a sequel per se. It's just a continuation of a very popular uh, franchise, and but it's introducing it to a whole new generation. If they don't do it right, or if they mess up the characters, or they're just putting something out because the money's there, yes, they're they're losing the chance at a new franchise. Yeah, that's true, and I I do think what we're learning is that story sells. Um, you know, there are, and I I think maybe the best example of this is Big Hero 6 did well, but I think people were hoping that it would do better um, because, you know, Disney animation films have been so strong recently. Not that Big Hero 6 wasn't, but my kids, uh, after seeing Big Hero 6, their comment was, it was good, but it was very predictable, and it was formulaic, and they didn't like that. So they saw it once, Whereas with their their feelings about Inside Out, if I know them well, and I think they do, I think I do. They're they're my kids. If they really like it, they're gonna want to see it multiple times. They must have watched Frozen like twenty times, ridiculous numbers of times. They just loved it. Uh, my daughter and my and my youngest son in particular, even my oldest, you know, he's in high school now. He he watched it, you know, a couple times. Uh, you know, with his brother and sister. So they can tell kids are smart. You know, they can tell when you're being formulaic and when you are, you know, trying to tell an original story. And um, that is always the risk. You know, there is such a thing as franchise fatigue in the sense that if the follow-up is meant largely to cash in and not to continue the story, you'll cash in once but you won't be able to cash in a third time. Movies are very much this way. The movie before tends to, the reaction to the movie prior tends to predict the following for the movie after. So, for example, I'll take um, X-Men First Class 
and X-Men Days of Future Past, which is the top grossing film in the entire, that's the entirety of that X franchise that Fox has thrown out there. X-Men First Class didn't do amazing financially. It, it broke even. It didn't do great. But, man, it was well-received. The people who went to see it, um, who took a leap of faith after getting sorely disappointed by the movie before, liked it so much that, well, maybe when the next one comes out, I'll give it a shot. And it turns out to be the big grocer. Same thing with Despicable Me. Despicable Me, people loved it, thought it was great. And so they were absolutely 100% ready, couldn't wait to see Despicable Me too. And, of course, that goes on to a better gross. Um, if you disappoint people, uh, you really have to work harder when the sequel comes out. So in the case of, like, a Hotel Transylvania, I think that pleased people enough that it should do okay. Uh, but I, I wouldn't expect it to do amazing. In the case of Inside Out, there's been enough goodwill built up that, uh, you know, I think people will suspend disbelief and go straight to see it. They, they will probably just line up for it. That is true of Minions, too. I, I, you know, in the case of the Peanuts movie, that has historical goodness tied to it, so they'll probably line up for that. Um, it's less clear, you know, how the, the Hotel Transylvania probably doesn't have as much of a tailwind in that sense, and Monster Trucks has zero tailwind in that sense. And especially if the trailer comes off and it looks exactly like cars or a ripoff of cars, then it could go very, it could go very poorly very quickly. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, it's, oh, I remember, and I still talk to people these days who think that every Pixar movie, that every, that every 3D movie that comes out is a Pixar movie. And while that's good for Pixar, they've become very well associated with that um, that form of animation, it kind of just makes you think, oh, no, 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 there's more to it. So the sure. they're doing something to make it look like the historical sense that that's kind of a new updated version of Charles Schwartz's strip, um, I think that will play well into how successful it is. But you still have to deal with some kids and even um, the people who didn't really grow up with the penis, because that's more of the baby boomer generation and maybe a little bit yeah. of the X and the millennials. But the most of the millennials know about Charlie Brown is the guy at Halloween, Christmas, and on occasion Thanksgiving. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And um, it, it isn't the institution that it used to be, and that's true of uh, Dr. Seuss as well. I mean, Dr. Seuss, there used to be really great animated uh, Dr. Seuss cartoons and short films, and not not as many anymore. And then they adapted The Cat in the Hat, and it was, eh, I mean, I, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't that great. And then you have some others now that have have come out. The Lorax did pretty well. Um, I'm missing another one. I know there's been another recent uh, Dr. Seuss film that was adapted. Um, I'm forgetting what it is, but uh, but you're right. I mean, there is uh, not as much 
kids, you know, especially with current generation of film goers, they don't have the same emotional connection to Charlie Brown, the Peanuts gang, and, and Dr. Seuss as maybe I do, because I'm in my mid-40s now, and I have three children. I remember growing up with, with Charlie Brown, so uh, it's, it's definitely different. Mm-hmm. But it, we're looking at the same case that was happened with the Muppets, though. Um, the mm, Muppets that's a good were, one. Yeah, the Muppets are kind of similar to the Peanuts. They were tossed from company to company um, before they were finally acquired by Disney, and we're talking maybe one, one or two generations had it really been introduced to them in a formal way like they have with the, the Muppet Show, and then all these Muppet right. movies coming out. So, right. Disney with these new movies coming out, they have a whole new fan of Muppet fans coming on. Yeah, that uh, you're. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can breathe life into into old franchises, but again, it's it's got to be. It's got to be done in a way where stories first, and we're not trying to just brush, you know, dust off an old property and see how much money we can squeeze out of it. So, you know, you hire somebody like a Tina Fey to come in and really spice up, you know, a, a Muppet movie, and you bring in some some actors, you you bring in some people. I mean, in that particular case, what they what was really brilliant about you know, the way they've done the Muppet films is they bring in, you know, actors with their own brands and brands that are popular with moviegoers and attach them to this older brand and say, like, well, let's see what we can do with this if we put a good story behind it. That can be a very interesting and very, you know, useful strategy. I mean, in in live action, um, you could argue that, uh, you know, whether you like these movies or not, uh, that's what Sylvester Stallone did with the Expendables. Like, you know, did a ridiculous story and then put, but put together some name actors with some different, you know, uh, you know, different brands, made fun of themselves on screen, put, you know, put a lot of action out there, didn't pretend to be anything else and made some decent money at it. So that's a reasonable strategy, but in the end, what I, I find gratifying about the run of things like, you know, the Despicable Me properties or like a, a Wreck-It Ralph or what's coming with Inside Out is that original there's still a lot of room to thrill audiences with original properties. I find that very gratifying. Yeah. I think original properties are, I really think we need to see a bit more of them out there. Uh, what I find happening is that a lot of studios are just looking, turning to the past and making adaptations or remakes. And while some of these are great, a lot, some of them are bad, it, it's rare to see a new original idea out there as much. Yeah, that's that's true. And if it if you do see it, it usually comes from a studio that is willing to back it, or that property had to prove itself first. So, in the case of like Illumination, they made the uh, you know they made the financial risk for Universal. That that their profile on Despicable Me was very attractive, very low budget. Um, you know, not a lot of, 
uh, you know, not not a huge distribution headache. Universal already has a lot of distribution muscle on its own. So Universal is not taking very much risk. It's a small studio that's, you know, trying to do something interesting. And then once it proves itself, now we put more money behind it. We sign a different deal. I mean, good for Illumination. They really cracked that nut. And then they, by taking the risk on themselves, they put themselves in an excellent position for sure. It doesn't often happen that way. If you see an original property, very often it will come from a studio that has the money to burn. You know, so like a Disney you know, and Pixar, they can take a big risk with Inside Out because it's not going to break the bank. But it's tougher when it's a new, you know, coming out of nowhere property with a studio that doesn't have much of a track record. So, like, but on the other hand, I mean, this is what's given rise to, like, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, these other funding platforms that have allowed uh, artists and entertainers and animators to get their stuff out there. Um, you may know uh, Greg Weissman, you know, from Gargoyles and Young Justice and all these terrific animated properties, and he is now out on Kickstarter doing an audio play for a book series uh, that is uh, that, that he's come up with called Reign of the Ghosts. And uh, I think it's a very interesting idea. He went out, he got all his voice talent, it's all paid for. But now to, you know, grease distribution, he's taken that, you know, he's taken a Kickstarter to get some funding to increase distribution. Very smart, you know, that allows for um, getting more original properties out there. And then us, who might be fans, you know, we can pick some of the properties that may not be, you know, fed to us from a big studio but sound very interesting because a creator we like is involved. You know, we can go to these places and, and, and provide some, some funding. It's certainly, we're seeing way more creative distribution now than was possible 20 years ago, for sure. Yeah, and I was just talking with a few other people about how creative a lot more a lot more people who probably would not have had the chance to put their stuff out there are starting to do that, and they're starting to get a notice from it. And what's good about it is that there's a lot more room for something original, but there's a lot more competition just to get noticed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That That is absolutely true. And, you know, I mean, I love what enterprising creators are, are doing. I like, I particularly like the story of, of Damien Chazelle with Whiplash, you know, and had a great script that wanted to get made and nobody wanted to take a chance of somebody who was, had never been a major filmmaker, um, but got, um, J.K. Simmons interested in, in the script to so made a short film and submitted it to Sundance, and it wins awards at Sundance, and then using that as a platform to say, we want to make this into a feature film. So we've got awards now. We've got people interested. We can line up some additional money. You can take that to a studio distributor and write a better contract for yourself. So, I mean, the, and in a way, um, the business has never been worse because it's populated by so many heavy hitters who are crowding small guys out, but in another way, it's never been better because 
there is no mechanism for those big studios to say, look, you do it our way or you don't do it at all. They can't say that anymore because we've got YouTube, we've got Kickstarter, we've got Vimeo, we've got all sorts of other mechanisms for getting great animated properties out there if we want them to be there. And the key thing, though, is is that you have to make something quality, you have to put it out there, and you have to be found. Yes. Yeah, you do. And I, I think, you know, that really is the hard part. Something I've been toying with at, at the Full Bleed is, is trying to interview independent creators, independent comics creators, and just others, independent filmmakers. Like, you know, when you got your property off the ground, you, you know, you had a successful Kickstarter campaign or might be in the middle of it or whatever it is you're trying you know, what is it you're finding in the marketing, fundraising, and other processes so that, you know, other creators can learn from that? Because, I mean, you know, having ideas is one thing. The problem is ideas are not patentable, and they're a dime a dozen. If you're a good creator, you're going to have a lot of ideas. The hard part is always getting it, you know, into the right hands, and doing the hard work to develop and market. And uh, anything we can do to try and uh, help people crack the nut, I think, is a good service. I agree with that. Um, Coming from my own experience, I know that it takes a while to build a reputation. I know it takes a while to just establish yourself as an authority or as a creative individual. And what I think people fail to recognize is that, you know, even today in the Internet, it's instant gratification for a lot of stuff, but you have to put work in it and you still have to keep plugging away at the trail or, I guess, squeaky wheel or right. or whatever you want to, whatever euphemism you want to use. You still have to uh, trample away just to make sure it works and that it's good, and then eventually your hard work will be rewarded. Hopefully. Yeah, I mean, and and getting the right people to to look at your stuff, and you know, now we can, thanks to social media, we have a way to to talk to people who were always going to be at arm's length in in years past. So that's really interesting. I I've got a a few minutes left, and I don't want to leave any questions on the table here. So what 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 do we got to cover? Well, my last question, actually. Okay. And it's one you answered last year, but I'm going to have you answer it again. Do you, yeah. Mr. Tim Myers, have anything to declare? I do. I, I, I declare that um, this upcoming, uh, you know, next three years of animated properties, particularly in genre entertainment, I think are going to be a, a new golden age that is similar to what I grew up with, with Saturday morning cartoons, except they're not going to be Saturday morning cartoons. They're going to be Netflix, they're going to be Hulu, and they're going to be on on the big screen because I think the technology and the interest is greater than it's ever been. Uh, so I fully expect, and the, and the, the, the um, example I turn to is The Force Awakens and Star Wars Rebels. This is a, an integrated universe that's growing, that's going to be made better by animated properties. And I love that. I can't even express how much I love that, um, but I do. 
And I think we're going to see a lot more of that because, A, it makes economic sense, and, B, um, I think it allows for a much wider audience to engage and grow with the property. So even if, you know, like my nine-year-old doesn't, you know, really get the the Force Awakens when we go to see it, he might, he might not. I mean, I don't know. He certainly likes Star Wars Rebels, and he wants to grow with that property. And so I think that creates a long tail for Disney. And I don't think Disney's going to have a monopoly on this. I think Warner does exceptionally well with DC Animation. And the three, they do three a year. And of those three, two are tied in a continuous universe. One's usually based on a video game. But still, there's like a continuous universe that's developing an animation that DC is building. It can tie into other properties. And, you know, we can engage with it on an ongoing basis. Another long tail opportunity. That's great. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. I think so, too. At this point, I think it's a waiting game, and we just have to see what develops. And if you want part of the action, well, there's no better time to start learning and start creating. Right. I agree. I I, I mean, I, I'd love to see it. I hope, uh, you know, if, if listeners have stuff they, you know, want to share, you should feel free to send me a tweet at um, – at the full bleed on on Twitter, I, I'd love to see it. You know, let me know. I, I want to see stuff. So today I have a special guest. His name is Tim Byers. Did I say that right? You did. Tim Byers. Hey, that's a great name for a financial gut writer. <laughs> Tim I Byers. guess that's true, huh? Yeah, and he's a freelance writer for The Motley Fool, my favorite. Um, sorry, everyone, that was my dog wanting to play fetch. That My favorite financial advice, advice website. So, Tim, say hello to everyone. Hey, guys, how's it going? Fine! <laughs> <laughs> so, Tim, I met you on Twitter after I heard your interview on one of my favorite podcasts, The Word Balloon, and I was just impressed with a geek being a financial expert. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you write about the geek and pop culture and of financial and how you got into this? Yeah, sure. So um, I've been a comic book fan for a very long time, which is why... Uh, I had such a fun time on, on John Sutris's uh, Word Balloon podcast. And, um, you know, so this goes back to like when I was eight or nine years old. And I used to walk up first when we were still living in New York and take my bike up to the deli and you could get comics off the spinner rack. And then later on, we moved all the way to the West Coast and I was, uh, you know, you had to walk up to the 7 Eleven to find the spinner rack. Of course, it's very different today. But, you know, I kind of backed into this, and I, I think, and at least I hope, a lot of people are starting to find ways to, uh, you know, sort of turn their passions into a career. And I kind of backed into that, but I started as a, uh, a PR consultant, and I, I always wanted to be a writer. I mean, in fact, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a comic book writer. Um, and frankly, I'm, you know, I still haven't really grown up. I still want to be a comic book writer. I mean, come on. 
wouldn't that be amazing? But, um, you know, the, um, uh, my history, you know, coming out of college was that that just wasn't where the jobs were. And I, I had a, a real background in, in communications and I, um, took a job writing and, and doing PR for tech companies. I was a consultant for the better part of 15 years. And I always kept the pulse on, on writing. And what I found out is that, uh, you know, there are lots of companies that needed uh, help with, with telling their story, but it was just at a very different, you know, sort of path. So I was writing earnings scripts and press releases and all sorts of stuff and came around to 2003 and The Motley Fool had an open call for, uh, you know, for financial writers, freelance writers. And at the time, my wife and I had been struggling with a, a bit of debt. Uh, we had turned to The Fool, kind of found that site, got really immersed uh, and started turning our financial life around. And I found that this was a real passion for me that, you know, I thought it was great that you did not have to be, you know, someone with a Wall Street pedigree to figure out how to just manage your money well. And it, for a lot of years, I would write about fairly strict, you know, tech and financial topics. And every once in a while, if I could, you know, especially after Spider-Man, the first Spider-Man movie came out in 2002, every once in a while, there would be an opportunity to throw something in about comics, animation, geeky stuff, because they had hit the headlines. And so I, I kind of thought of it like, you know, I would be a, a, a good guy and eat all my vegetables and do all the stuff I was supposed to do. And then every once in a while, I get some dessert. I get to write about a big comic book film. Um, that has since shifted, I think. I, and Whitney, I'm sure you've noticed the way this is, has shifted over the past couple of years. You know, the, the nerd culture, the geek culture has been a, an incredibly rich vein of mass market stories. Now, we, I think those of us on the inside always knew that could happen. But it's like a dream come true that it actually has happened. So now um, my career has shifted a little bit because I have such a history with this. And there's so much, you know, financial opportunity that I'm still writing about the things that I always did, like like tech. But I'm writing a lot more about uh, comics and, and the business of comics and, and uh, um, you know, pop culture and, and geek culture. So it's been a really great ride it's been an interesting ride and i think now you know to the question of whether or not you know it's an interesting time to be investing in this space or looking at it i think it's an incredible time but you know we i think we're going to talk more about that so hopefully that gives you a good background we shall the geeks shall live long and prosper as mm -hmm. i i shall say barring yeah. from star trek absolutely i'm i'm right there with you hey. um we're all part of the fandom, and we're all one big happy family. Absolutely, absolutely, and you should see. I mean, if you if you haven't been, you know, any of the listeners, if you haven't been to San Diego Comic Con at you know ever or in a lot of years, it has blown up to the point where it really is a pop culture show. When I yep. first went in. I'm dating myself. I'm gonna say like 1991. It was a comic book <laughs> wow. show. Yeah, it was a comic book show. That it's, was the dark days of comic books, too. Yeah, yeah. My last, I had, the last time I went, 
1994 and then in 2010 when I went back for the first time and all of those years back in 94 I was waiting in line to get like signatures from Frank Miller and John Byrne and Chris Claremont and in 2010 when I was going to cover it as a member of the media I was waiting in line for interviews with you know studio executives and actors and actresses and it was crazy different the main part of the floor is taken up by the the major studios so it's it's a a sea change it's been very interesting mm-hmm. i was there in 2010 too i think that's actually in my mind as a and in my perception as a fan that's when it started to get so big it's almost impossible to get into now yeah yeah, I, you're not wrong. And so there have been the, the beautiful part about that is because it's become such a pop culture fest and San Diego has become um, one of these places that it's a pilgrimage, but it's so it feels to some people. And I think rightfully so as, you know, home of the privileged, like, how can I get in? I'm scrambling. I'm a fan. I just want to go. Will you please let me go? And it's so hard to get yeah. in that. um Great venues popped up that are serving a lot of the same purpose, but on a smaller scale. So I live in suburban Denver, and we're going into the third year of Denver Comic Con. And wow, mm-hmm. what a wonderful event that is. Um, and I think we're seeing this all around the country. Mm-hmm. Personally, um, as much as I love San Diego Comic Con, I try to get into la- I try to go in uh, t- 2013. I mean, I lost some money on the way there, so maybe you can help me recruit that But um, with some advice. But I say if you can go to one of the bigger, smaller cons, it's worth it because it's more intimate and yes. you still get the same experience. Absolutely. With less I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think you get many of the same connections. And whether you're like an aspiring writer or artist or, or animator, I think a lot of the scouting happens at some of these smaller events. And frankly, you know, the way, I mean, everybody says this, there's no like one great story of breaking into the industry. And I'm not, I'm an observer of the industry and not in the industry. But when you sort of take the sum total of those stories, it's always something about, I met so-and-so and we got to talking and I had a chance to pitch this idea and, you know, things sort of blossomed from there. And when, you know, you're in the midst of an overwhelming crowd, the chances are you're just not going to get enough of that opportunity. Having said that, though, you know, there are just as many stories of I, you know, pulled up stakes and I, I made a trek to San Diego and I sat in and waited my turn and had a chance to have my portfolio reviewed and that led to something. But it's never like a magic bullet thing. But, um, no, I completely agree with you. New York, Emerald City Comic Con, I think increasingly Denver, C2E2 and Chicago, these are all places where the pros are going, and there's a chance to meet, I think, more of them. And you know what? At, speaking of animation, at, um, gosh, here in Denver, at Denver Comic Con, I met Greg Guler. And if you don't know who Greg Guler is, um, he is... Oh, gosh, let me get this right. Um, Phineas and Ferb. Oh. He's one, of the, he's, he's one of the principal designers and sort of story overseers of Phineas and Ferb. 
And it's what a great gig it is for him. He goes out to Hollywood every every once in a while, uh, but he lives outside of the major Denver area. And he's just a killer guy. He started as a comic book guy and sort of wound his way into that world of, of animation. He's been working on Phineas and Ferb for years. Mm-hmm. So you've established yourself as a comic book guy. Nope. I feel that comic books and animation are basically the same thing. But what makes you an animation fan? Um, you know, it goes back a long way because I, I, I don't totally agree with the thesis that they're the same thing, but they're certainly related. And I think it's a draw, especially in the superhero genre. Animation draws people into comics and vice versa. And I think that's always been true. It certainly was true for me as a kid, like in the early 70s. I was watching, it's still one of my favorites is the early Spider-Man cartoons. <laughs> totally. I love those. And that I got into Spider-Man as a consequence of that. And so today there is, you know, Warner and I think Disney, you know, Disney has, Disney has a, a strange setup that we can talk about. But there's Marvel Studios, and then there's Marvel Animation, and Warner Brothers is Warner Brothers. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it is a different type of setup. But in each case, the two companies are making a more concerted effort to try and draw people in with, with animation. And, um, you know, in Marvel's case, you've had some real good ones. Uh, one of their big successes recently is Hulk and the Agents of Smash. They are getting quite a few big voiceover names to come in and do some some guest spots on that. Uh, Marvel hasn't had a lot of huge success in that area. Warner has been killing it for a while now. But it's nice to see them doing some stuff. So as a fan, I like to see things that aren't necessarily canon. And we were all geeks, so we know what that means. You know, like the stuff that (laughs) is like, this is the official continuity. And animation doesn't really count, but who cares, right? (laughs) You know, we we like that it's it's there and it sort of feeds our sensibilities. So, you know, if we liked the Avengers movie, we can go to Disney XD and watch Avengers Assemble. If we liked Fox's The Amazing Spider-Man, we can go check out you know what? Um, gosh, I forget the name of, of the writer. He's on the great the the, the comics edition of the Nerdist Writers Panel. Uh, I can't remember. Uh, yeah, do you know? I want to say it's Adam Beechin who is, or he may be writing for Teen Titans Go. Gosh darn it! I'm gonna if he's lit, sir. I'm sorry if I got sorry. it wrong. But anyway, they they're building out some interesting stuff in like you know Ultimate Spider-Man. So yeah. I, I don't think that dynamic has changed since the 70s where fans like me can sort of get a quick release. Personally, for me, one of my favorites and what I'm rewatching now because it's available on Amazon Prime is um, the animated series, Batman the Animated oh, Series. It's awesome. That awesome. Let me interrupt you there. Best animated series ever. It is really, it holds up. It holds up. Um, Bruce Tim and Paul Dini, I think, really oh, yeah. changed what we thought was possible. Don't forget TV. Tim Burton. Tim Burton was on there too. That's true. 
That, yeah, you're right. And Tim Burton, too, originally was a Disney animator. So isn't that funny? Isn't that interesting? You know, for the reputation that, that he has as sort of this dark, you know, visionary that's bringing some sort of macabre but funny yeah. sort of stories to the screen. Um, and he started as a Disney animator. <laughs> he did. You remind me of a funny story of Tim Burton of one of the reasons why he left Disney was because he was tired of drawing Sandy Duncan as a fox. Right, right, exactly. And this is an interview, I, I, and so I did not know, I had no idea that, you know, of that story until I met, so another, you know, great comic book artist here in Denver, uh, J. Scott Campbell. You know him? I don't know him, oh. but I interviewed him last year, and so I did some stories ahead of Denver Comic Con, and so I went to his house, and I got a chance to see like his studio, and it was very cool, and Scott started his most fervent desire when he was a kid was to be a Disney animator, so he had one of his first investments he was telling me is like a Laserdisc player because back in those days in like the early 80s, one of the best ways you could study screen by screen capture frame by frame so you could get sort of the mindset and be able to do the detail of an animated drawing is you, you couldn't really do that with a VHS tape, but with a Laserdisc, you could do it. And so he had this ridiculously expensive Laserdisc system and he ended up not going to, to Disney animation for similar reasons that he described that Tim Burton story to me. And it, he sort of cited that as a similar reason why he didn't want to do that. It Comics gave him an opportunity to explore his own characters in the different sequences. And comics is, I think they're similar, it's similar to animation in this period, but the animation frame is it moves, it moves quickly and you're not stopping and zeroing in on it. You never do. You can't. You know, it's it fully expresses itself on screen. It's in motion. Whereas a comic book, you know, you can't get away, for example, with not knowing how to draw a car. You can't get away with it. You know, you, you have to be able to draw those backgrounds. That's a very hard thing for an artist to do, especially if you're putting out a 23 to 22 to 23 page book every month. And you're not only drawing the cover, but you're drawing interiors. That's crazy. Huh. And especially if you have a sadistic writer <laughs> who, wants, who you know, wants to put together like crazy three-panel pages and then next to it like a classic nine-panel page, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm rambling here. I hope I'm answering your questions. Oh, you will. I mean, you've established yourself just by some of the stories you're telling us. Um, that you are an animation fan, so I think you've been accepted into the masses and legions. <laughs> one of us, one of us. Yeah, I really, I, I still, uh, I still enjoy it. It's, it's fun stuff. I've been trying to get my son into. So the animated series is one of my favorites. But I think if I'm gonna say like my, my all time favorite superhero animation, I still think is Justice League Unlimited uh. and. Um, if um, I really miss Dwayne McDuffie, who was a great writer, and he had this four-episode run at the end of season one of Justice League Unlimited that I thought would make the perfect live-action Justice League movie. And um, 
it has it's the whole conspiracy theory around how the question is figuring oh, yeah. out you know lex Luthor's real plot and then how brainiac gets involved it's just great yeah, it's so good. much fun that was good i remember that yeah i mean if we talk about canon you don't have to yes. look any further than the dc animated universe and that just went i mean early 2000s 90s it was all canon and then yes. it just went into the multiverse spectrum but that's a whole nother podcast sure sure yeah we don't have to go down that that particular rat hole but uh yeah let's, Not today. let's, get into it. let's, let's talk <laughs> more, some more business what yes what else can Money. i tell you we're going to talk the cash green. Um, <laughs> so, one of the reasons why I wanted to interview you is I've been doing some research on what movies are going to be big in 2014. I mean, there's yeah. some obvious choices, but yeah. along with my research, I have heard that 2014 is going to be pretty quiet. And I've looked at the movie release list and i mean there's how to train your dragon yep. which is a big established property already but everything yep. else is basically brand new and a lot of people are saying that uh these studios are laying in wait for bigger stuff in 2015 and beyond what do you think is going to happen in 2014 you know i think it's a it's a the franchise building is always a dicey business and the company that seems to have done it right is Illumination Entertainment, and but Illumination, you know, you wanna, I wanna hold them up as a standard, but that's not really fair because you know Illumination, and I'm gonna forget his name, but he was the head of Fox Entertainment, and then left that, and said I'm gonna start this new animation studio. So already had plenty of funding, already had plenty of contacts, you know, sort of laid out a vision and a business plan, and then hooked up with NBC Universal, and now Illumination technically is independent and i mean everybody knows this right because we're talking about the animated interviews podcast but this is the home of despicable me um and so you know they've had just killer success amazing success but they had some advantages coming out the gate but one of the things they did really correctly in trying to establish that first franchise you know and i think we can fairly argue now that despicable me is a franchise we're going to have Minions as the neg, the third installment in in that franchise, and I believe uh -huh. it's going to be uh, summer of 2015. But all of those films have been made on the cheap. They've been made very inexpensively, opposite of the Pixar model. Um, their animation process strips out a lot of cost. I don't know. You know, they haven't really told the details of their technology that explains how they're able to do a a mega you know, animated film for $70 million or less when the standard is closer to $100 million or higher. Uh, but they're doing it. So, you know, that's a big deal. In terms of 2014, there are several. There are nine. I'm looking at the, the box office mojo list here, and I count nine um, animated features that are upcoming. And some of them are, you know, classic, like Blue Skies Rio 2 is, is going to be out in April. Uh, but Fox um, has uh, Mr. Peabody and Sherman. Uh, we're going to have another Planes, uh, you know, a sequel from, from Disney. I think the big one for Disney is Big Hero 6. Yeah, that's I was just thinking about that one. Yeah, they, that's the one they really want to see hit um, as, you know, their first major, you know, Fran animated franchise in that super heroic realm. Um, 
you know, so that's a pretty big bet. Um, but yeah, you're, you're not wrong. The box trolls totally new. That's a focus features film. Um, geez. I mean, the book of it, life, book of life. Yeah. There's, there's another one. So, you know, franchise building is tough and, uh, especially in animation where it, it seems like, I think the big, especially where investors get concerned and they get they get confused, is it seems like something that is a throwaway, that it's cheap, when in fact it's exactly the opposite. Yes, you have to pay a lot for actors in, in live action, but you don't get away with too much. You still have to hire voice actors. The technology is crazy. Visual effects are really hard to do, especially if you're doing a computer-animated feature. So you just don't know. And the time required to create... A, uh, a visually stunning animated feature is not much different than the time it takes for you know a live action film. They don't just crank them out every single year. Illumination seems to have found a way to compress the time frame a little bit, so I think that's why they get uh, held up as as the standard here. But um, I think 2014 is a year of franchise building, and we'll see how it happens. I mean, I I think. This is very much a hit or miss type of enterprise, and I'd be skeptical of anything that looks too much like it has, uh, you know, it relies on a trope. So, for example, Freebirds, and you had the guys in the nuclear suits. I mean, like those guys looked like, you know, this these are our minions, you know, and so that film completely flopped because it seemed like it was driven by a trope rather than by a story. And um, you know, the minions are a nice sidelight and they've become incredibly popular but there's a real story at the heart of despicable me plus it's very well written and very funny so as with all of it as with anything story drives uh box office results in a lot of cases so yeah we'll see what kind of story hits behind this if i had to pick one that i'm most skeptical of i hate to say it because i grew up with it but i think it's mr peabody and sherman yeah I think that might play into the Rocky and Bullwinkle and Dudley Do-Right movies right. that came out based on the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoon show. Yeah, it's, and, and so selling on nostalgia rather than selling on story. But I do have hope, though, that you know I would love to see a film like The Box Trolls find a, a nice niche because it it is tough. It is really hard to develop a a great franchise, but uh, when it hits, you get you you know you, you immediately get a second chance if it hits, and then they want to give you a third chance. So Hollywood works that way. It is no different between the way animation works and the way live action works. If something hits, the first thing that Hollywood wants to do is repeat it, <laughs> and then you know so you have yeah, and this is true in tech too. This is a a famous Warren Buffett quote. He says, "There's always the innovator, the imitator, and then there come the idiots." <laughs> Hollywood works exactly the same wow. way. So we're at that funny point in the life of animated films where we we saw some innovators. You know, Despicable Me I think can fairly be called one of those a few years back. Then some imitators came along and they worked pretty well. And then the imitators came, Freebirds. And they miss badly, and so now we're in a refresh period, mm -hmm. and we'll see who comes out as an innovator. Um, when you just said about the 
innovators, imitators, and then the idiots, it reminded me of a story of Walt Disney when he found success with his Three Little Pigs cartoon. Mm -hmm. Someone told, like, the people wanted more Three Little Pigs, and right. someone said to him, give him pigs, give him more pigs, and Walt Disney was like, eh, no. Right. We're going to be doing some other stuff. Right, right, and that is, it, it, it seems, you know, when... Uh, there are as many. There are more accountants in in Hollywood than there are creators. Sadly enough, especially amongst the big Hollywood studios, and you know the creative formula cannot be just broken down into basic. I mean, it's as much as they try, it cannot be broken down into a repeatable formula that works every time. Creative endeavors never work that way. Hmm. I think that's what uh, Pixar took to heart when they started their own studio. Um, speaking of Pixar and Disney, um, they, well, Disney more so than Pixar ever since they bought them, Disney is like the branding empire when it comes to animated films. I mean, look what they've done with Frozen. Yeah. How big does branding influence financial success in animated films? It does. I mean, it, it certainly does. And in the case of Disney, this is the largest licensor of branding imprints in the world, and it's not even close. Really? Uh, oh, my gosh. It's well that. over. The, the value of Disney-owned branded imprints is over $40 billion a year. Jeez, that's enough. Uh, it's, it's crazy. That's the gross it's domestic crazy. product of, like, three nations. Yes. Yeah, no, no doubt. And um, now... It, to be fair, not all of that flows to Disney, but consumer products is is one of Disney's. So D Disney as a studio, it has um, it has NBC Universal broadcast. It has NBC Universal Cable, which is like ESPN. It has Studio Entertainment, which generates a lot of revenue and small operating and lumpy uh, margins. And then it has consumer products, and consumer products is one of the largest divisions. Of, of Disney, but it also has the highest margins. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's because they're writing contracts. The, the, the revenue that comes in from Disney consumer products is largely, we own the rights to, you know, the princesses and Frozen. And if you'd like to create cups with their images on it, here's a contract, sign it, and this is what we get for every cup that you make. Hmm. And so checks come into Disney and they just put them in the bank. Um, so it is, you know, the margins on that uh, business are absolutely crazy. Now, everybody that owns intellectual property, you know, Universal is making that kind of money uh, through its deal with Illumination Entertainment. So when you buy Minion shirts, you are, you know, funding you know, Comcast and Universal Pictures through their consumer products group, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. So Disney is um, uh, D Disney is a fascinating, you know, company, but to the question of, yeah, branding absolutely influences, and you can see it in the way that they build out their empire. So you have uh, theme parks that increasingly are, are character-driven, characters <laughs> that appear in the movies and the TV shows. Mm -hmm. You have, um, you know, you have the Disney store. Mm -hmm. And so the, the movie of the moment is, of course, going to be featured right there in the front window there in the mall. So if the kids happen to walk by and see it, you know, they may have just seen a Disney film and they want to get the toy or the shirt or 
you know, they're, it's just a tickler to remind them, oh, man, I really want to see that film. So it really does play into it. Disney has quite, they have a lot of marketing prowess in this area. What about, but does branding always guarantee success, though? No, it doesn't. I mean, there have been, you know, big films that have been, you know, heavily marketed. Now, if this is a live action, you know, uh, you know, example. But, uh, man, I can't remember a film that was he- as heavily marketed as Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Oh, yeah. And one that, that flopped as, as badly. So absolutely not. I mean, smart branding um, can, can help, but it, it guarantees nothing. I think in the case of Scott Pilgrim versus the world, there was some of us who just, I personally really liked it. Um, and I thought it, it felt familiar to me because it was funny. It was tongue in cheek. And then I think for a lot of people who didn't know anything about that, that comic or the style of it, um, they were like confused by its stylistic sensibility. And so it was naturally designed for a niche, but got marketed as a mass mass market product. That's just a mistake, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, so be it. So no branding is, is never you know, a guarantee of, of absolute success. I mean, cars Two, yeah. remember cars Two? That's yeah. another one that was heavily branded, heavily yeah. marketed, completely bombed. Yeah. Well, someone, people are probably going to argue with that because it did make money and it did establish the Cars empire as more of a, what's it looking for, as more of a Disney property. And they still make Cars toys. Sure. And as a film, I don't, well, I guess I should say completely flopped is a pretty strong word, but, or phrase, but in the, I, I think it's telling that you are not seeing lar- a, a huge pursuit of, of that franchise from Pixar's perspective. They've kind of moved on. And, you know, now they're getting back to, you know, an old franchise that they're going to resuscitate and they're going to make Finding Dory. Yay! You know? Yeah, which is, I mean, I, people love that. Um, I personally, I'll throw this out there and just say, I think the most underutilized Pixar franchise ever is The Incredibles. Yes. Yes. We talked about that before on the, the, well, on the other podcast it's been talked about. And it's just, I don't know, Brad Bird. I don't know what about him, but even though he's a, I mean, he's, he's a genius when it comes to animated movies, sometimes they just get stuck in the doldrums or yeah. Purgatory or Limbo. Right. That is the kind of film that I think people are hungering for a, a great sequel. Duh. And I'm not sure we're ever going to see it. And I don't know exactly why. I forget what the licensing thing is is about it. Um, but that that is a property that could expand. I mean, it's a, it plays into the nostalgic factor for comic book fans. Absolutely. It, kids love it. Um, it, it it's... I think the first PG animated Pixar film. Yeah. And it touches on everything. And I mean, it does have its faults, but sure. all but of it the hits every major archetype and it, it twists it and plays with it, has fun with it, is serious only when it needs to be and ends up being a film that you end up really caring 
about this this family and uh you know that's that really is the secret sauce um a great story is a great story whether it's animated or not and the incredibles had all the elements um and if you look if all the ma- at all the major animated successes that is continually true you know kids love the minions but grew is such a character grew is an easy to love character you know uh he's very sympathetic uh so a great story is is still a great story but yeah i I would love to see Disney do something else with uh, with the Incredibles, but boy, do they have a lot of property that they can that they can work with. Disney is one of those companies that looks like has legs for a very very long time. Their intellectual property, I think, is arguably unmatched. Yeah, and not to mention that they single handedly pushed back the copyright date. Plus. No, I didn't really, I didn't reckon, I didn't realize that. You didn't? No, I did not. <laughs> oh, yeah. When um, Mickey Mouse was copyrighted, when the laws were first made, should have expired years ago. But Disney lobbied to extend the intellectual property rights because they don't want Mickey to fall into the public domain. Because if That's it did, then you would see all these, um, I mean, people are already making pirated, unofficial licensed products. But you see more of it happening. And they don't want uh, the integrity of Mickey Mouse's to you know get corrupted that's really interesting well and i can understand that argument but there therein lies the the challenge right i mean you have to develop new new properties in order to make sure that they don't you know if you do lose a property to the public domain that you know you've got plenty more to replace it oh yeah i mean look at oz um, yes. the, the books are in the public domain. The, mo- the 1939 movie isn't, but when the copyright uh, went public, the market for Oz books just exploded. I mean, it's like fan fiction went nuts. Yeah, interesting. No, you're right. That's that's an interesting point, and it's a it, it's certainly a risk that Disney would have to face. Although when I look at at Disney and the the purchases they've made, it's a little under nine billion that they spent to to get Marvel and at Lucasfilm. I think their the payoff on that investment will be <laughs> geometric over the course of the next twenty to, to to thirty years. While we're on the subject of Marvel, sure, they have. I mean, when they got Marvel Studios, I mean, people have been itching for Marvel movies, I mean, for years. I mean, we got the X-Men movies, you got the Spider-Man movies, but now all of a sudden, it's just um, exploded, and people are hungry for it. Do you think Disney was aware of that, and they're just going to continue marketing on that until it just kind of pans out? Well, so I do think they were aware of it. I also think that they waited for Marvel to prove their model. So Marvel's an interesting case, and without going too far down the rat hole, we should just point out that Marvel uh, filed for bankruptcy in 1998, emerged from bankruptcy in 1999, and one of the ways they emerged from bankruptcy was to sell movie rights, live-action movie rights, to a number of different studios. Um so, for example, Fox still has the live-action rights to the Fantastic Four 
and 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 the X-Men and not just to those teams but to the entire family of characters. And so this is where lawyers can kill things that, you know, we love unfortunately, but it's getting more interesting. Um when it's when those contracts say family. So the idea here is that if a character appeared in the Fantastic Four comics, and that's where they principally are known for. They're known as part of the Fantastic Four family. So think Galactus, the Silver Surfer, um, you know, cosmic uh, heroes and villains of that nature. Uh, they are Fox properties. Fox mm-hmm. gets to make those films, and Walt Disney does not. Marvel Studios does not. Um, same thing with Sony. Sony bought the rights to the entire Spider-Man film, you know, uh, uh, you know, family of characters. So now Sony has a two-year cadence upcoming. We're going to see the Amazing Spider-Man here upcoming in, in May. There will be another. There's another film planned for 2016 and another one for 2018. And in addition, there's going to be at least two spinoffs. One starring the the Sinister Six, and then you know another one upcoming that is escaping me what the the concept is for that. But yes. To answer your original question, I think Disney knew this was coming. I think Disney also knew that they had these limitations to deal with. But I also think they thought they could be strategic about building an entire universe of characters. They could let Marvel Studios, again, this gets to the difference between Disney and Warner, for example. But they could let Marvel Studios kind of build its vision, keep Kevin Feige you know, going down the path, and Feige is, is the head of, of Marvel Studios, uh, to, to building lots of different franchises and properties. And then along the, uh, shortly after, I, actually, I think it was right before the Disney buy, uh, they realized that they had more they could do since they had some initial live-action success, Iron Man, Iron Man 2, create a distinct Marvel animation division, and then let that be the the home for self-produced new shows. And we talked about this earlier. We've seen since, you know, Avengers Assemble, Ultimate Spider-Man, and, uh, you know, Hulk Agents of Smash. And so there's lots of different rights at play, but I think Disney absolutely saw it. I think they're going to continue to let Marvel develop the properties as they see it. And the plan has always been, ever since Marvel was still independent, is to have two new live-action films every year. And that seems to be the cadence they're working off of. Um, This year, we're going to have Captain America, the Winter Soldier, and we'll have Guardians of the Galaxy. And getting back to the point of how this all interrelates, um, I think we're going to see, I'm not sure if it's going to be in Avengers Assemble, where we might see the Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm not entirely certain. But there is a deliberate attempt by Disney, which has this sort of executive... Well, it's not Disney, it's Marvel. has an executive committee that's comprised of um, the comic book team, the uh, Marvel TV team, and then the Marvel Studios guys. And they meet and you know make sure that stories in animation or comics or live TV are not going to trample on a studio film project and vice versa. So they've been very deliberate about that. But in the case of Guardians of the Galaxy, I've been reading Brian Michael Bendis' new uh, Guardians of the Galaxy series, the comic. It's freaking great. It's amazing. It's so funny. It's well done. It's epic. And I can hear some of the characters, character voices as I'm reading. And I think 
Marvel loves that idea that there is some tie-in between the two. And of course, Guardians of the Galaxy is going to be kind of challenging because you're going to have a CGI raccoon <laughs> up on screen. You're going to have Rocket up there. And I think that could be amazing, but there are a lot of skeptics that think that's going to be a disaster. Well, they can always look up Pompoco for inspiration. Sure. What about the other studios? I mean, Disney is the king, queen, whatever you want to call it, of yeah. branding and product merchandising. How can other studios compete? Well, I mean, Warner is doing an excellent job. So whereas I think what we could say, the way it's breaking down now, so Time Warner has Warner Brothers Studios. So just to illustrate, you know, we kind of alluded to the differences. So let's get explicit about what the difference is. So Warner Brothers is its own movie studio it has its own animation studio it's all interrelated it's all warner brothers and time warner is a conglomerate so there have been different divisions of time warner there is a publishing division interestingly enough dc entertainment dc comics was never in that publishing division and that's just historic that's by historical accident but it has always been part of warner brothers interesting though that they haven't done a lot with it on a live action basis but so the way it works is when Warner Brothers wants to make a DC-related property or film or animated series, they say, well, we have the license to do that, so we're just going to do that. The DC people don't really make them, except in the interest, interestingly, except in the case of animation. The live-action side of, of Warner and the animated side of Warner is incredibly different. So... If you look at Warner Animation and what they've done with DC properties, a lot of that is driven by DC guys, not Warner guys. Paul Dini, Bruce Timm. We were talking about Batman the Animated Series before. Paul Dini was a comic book writer long before he was doing real work on, on the animated series. Uh, Bruce Timm was a, a you know comic book artist. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's... I, I think history says that when you involve comic book creators in other properties, whether you're talking about animation or live action, you tend to get a higher, the chances of success are much higher. Um, so it doesn't surprise me too much that Warner Animation has been so successful and so good at doing really great animated features in TV. Um, so how does you know a company like Warner compete? I think right now what we're seeing is that they are zagging as Disney is zigging. Yeah. So Marvel is has been really focused on movies and only now is teasing TV. But man, Warner's been in TV for years. And whether you love it or hate it, Smallville ran for 10 years, 10 seasons. That was a huge success for, for Warner and uh, you know what became the CW. Now you have Arrow that just got re-upped for a third season. Great show. Uh, made by comic book guys uh, who are huge fans of the characters. And so they've been really building this DC universe in TV. And on the, you know, the DCAU, the animated size, same thing. You know, we had a great winner over the summer in Flashpoint. Now we've got Justice League War. I mean, there's some really great stuff that is coming out of there. So they're kind of taking a different approach, and they will get to more, I think, live-action uh, films. We're going to see it, but 
why would you rush to that when you're already having success uh, in television and animation? Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Because I, rem- I know, I mean, I've seen a lot of the Marvel animation just like you, but I just don't think it says, I mean, it's fun. It's well done. Yeah. I yeah, bet. it's better than it was. Yo. But, <laughs> yeah. But if you compare it to what Warner has done, I think Warner is the undisputed king yeah. of superhero animation. And I just don't think it's close. So I, I think Marvel might dispute that. But as a fan, <laughs> I think it's not close. No, and I totally agree. I mean, I love the Marvel stuff. It's. I don't know, it's just not, it's, I don't know, there's just something more classic, and I like the feeling better of the DC movies, or, I mean, the DC television series and the animated movies that have been coming out than I do the Marvel stuff. It just seems more, I guess, timeless and classic, while the Marvel stuff is just in your face now. Yeah, and even when it is, it is not, you know, classic, even when it's, experimental like flashpoint was it is so visceral and well done that you're like oh my gosh that is not a kids film by not at all but as an animated feature it is incredibly story driven and a thrill ride and a half oh my gosh that is a i mean i just as a recommendation if you haven't seen it see it just don't think that it, it is pure adult animation. It is not a kid's film. Hey, well, I'm always up for more adult and mature theme animation. I think Absolutely. we need a lot more of that to just get the genre out of this children's genre. I mean, uh, sorry, folks, it's a medium, not a genre. I get those confused sometimes. Forgive me, it's conditioning. <laughs> the world is conditioning me. Yeah. Um, they, and they condition the public as well. Um you want to talk about some other studios? Um, yeah, let's talk about some other studios. We have, we've talked Disney, we've talked Warner Brothers. Let's talk Blue Sky. Blue Sky, so Blue Sky has its, uh, so Fox is their distributor. And uh, Rio was a, was a nice hit. Um, but, you know, Rio 2 is, is coming in on, on April 11th, so it comes the week after. Uh, Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Oh, I do, they're yeah, doing so that's, it again. That's tough. That's tough. But Blue Sky has a really great history. Um, it also does, I mean, you know, my kids loved Rio, and I think they're going to want to see Rio too. So uh, it has the advantage, even though, you know, it, it, it comes in a tough spot, but it also has a slightly different audience, and that should do well. Now, I, I don't have a budget for, for Rio 2 yet. I don't know exactly what it's done. But, um, you know, this is a, a studio that does a lot of its own stuff. It has done some licensing, like Dr. Seuss Properties. It had Horton Hears a Who back in 2008. Uh, there have been three Ice Age films, and those have all been successes. I'm trying to just get the numbers on Rio here really quickly. But, yeah, it's a $90 million production budget, so fairly typical. Uh, of what a studio is willing to spend. In the case of Pixar, it can be, you know, geez, upwards of $120 million. But mm-hmm. still, right in that ballpark, and when you look at worldwide, almost, you know, 400, 480-something million, that's a profitable film. So this is a good studio. Um, I, I like them heading into 
2014. I expect that, that film to do well, but their next project after that in 2015 is another licensed property. It's a Peanuts film. And then oh, yeah. you've got you know, uh, Ice, another Ice Age film in 2016, and then they're going to start you know, working on a new property come 2018. So I think Blue Sky, is it fair to say they're playing it safe a little bit? Because it, they're leaning on some existing properties, trying to stabilize the financials, don't take too much risk too fast, because we're still a relatively new studio, and work up to Anubis in 2018. Yeah. Oh, that's what's coming out. How about Le Leica? They're doing the box trolls. Um, it's one I want to see. I mean, I, I really want to see, you know, how they do with it. I'm confused, honestly, by the box trolls. I can't tell exactly what I should expect here. But this is one of those cases where what to watch is um, how much does this cost to produce? Because the box trolls is you know one they have their distribution deals with focus and focus was reached uh um focus is not really focus anymore they have uh, they've combined with another studio and focus features is historically in an indie studio so for example yeah. you know their big dis you know distribution win over the past year is uh, dallas buyers club the oscar nominated film so that that's sort of their their think of them as you know sort of a lesser version of the Weinstein company. They've had some financial troubles and a lot of debt. So I want to say I'm cheering for the box trolls, but their distribution partner. This is not like you know getting a distribution deal with Fox or Universal. You cannot expect print and advertising to you know you can't expect Focus to come out by you know just gangbusters. No. With a lot of PNA to market that film, so I, it's a mixed bag here. But if the, the you know Illumination didn't get a ton of PNA for you know Despicable Me, that was sort of a flyer that Universal wanted to see what happened, and it hit. So you know the, if the word of mouth is solid, if the film hits and resonates with audiences, you bet, then it's off to the races for that studio. I hope they do succeed because they're doing stop motion and they're so good at it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and stop, stop motion is not that easy to do, or at least not that easy to do well. Yeah. I talked with um, a stop motion studio called Athena. Athena Studios over in Emeryville. I mean, they're basically Pixar's neighbors. And they're doing a new movie called Anti-Claws. It's going to be stop motion. And they're just doing so much work on this new holiday special and I mean their budget I mean they have the money for it but it's expensive and slow yeah. but they're going to do a great job and uh, I just want stop mo more stop motion just wish it was a little bit cheaper uh, but I don't want to sound like Ang Lee then I just <laughs> I know I know and look what happened the life of Pi in that special effects studio went bankrupt right yeah. right I mean there is, sure, uh, it, it is um, innovation in, in this is going to sound cheesy, but innovation and animation and just filmmaking in general, um, it, that's, that's an area to watch. We've had, and there really hasn't been, I'm not sure if, and, and maybe I'm just unfamiliar with things, but I don't know how much genuine tech innovation 
we've seen in, in filmmaking, animated or otherwise, over the past several years, in real D's stereoscopic technology, I, I think it's arguable how, how good that is and how innovative it is. Uh, the installations are basically done, and Real D hasn't done that well recently. IMAX is, people forget that IMAX is not new. IMAX goes back to the 60s. Um, you know, uh, gosh, I mean, it, I don't know how much real innovation we're seeing. And, of course, Pixar is still building its films around RenderMan. You know, that, that engine is still running, which great, you know, good for them. That's great, but um, it would be nice to see some more. I think that may be the next thing that sets a studio apart is some real fascinating, you know, technology innovation. I think that you know, for somebody that's starting up and trying to really, you know, make a move, if you change the game technologically, people are going to notice because that, uh-huh. you know, especially. In you know an area like this where um, cost is so interrelated with you know what you can squeeze out of the technology, so if you alter that equation dramatically, um, that's going to turn some heads. But the question is, is how? Because we're at a point where all of our technology is only good is getting to the point where we can imitate real life to people think it's real life how much further and technologically advanced can you get to get something new well you can but it's in in that case it's not so much what new stuff can you show but how cheaply can you do it you know like and this is just the the basic law of tech you know the 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 stuff to do you know grand like 3d printing is a good example here. 3D printing has existed for a very long time, but if you wanted to 3D print a decade ago, it would cost you, you know, millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars at least. Now you can get a 3D printer from 3D Systems for two thousand dollars. So it's you know a process of this is why you know what Illumination has been talking about, like bring the you know their budgets down and. Whatever it is, whatever technological thing they've done that allows them to cut costs. I mean, I don't really know what they what they've done, but it may just be that they're just incredibly cheap and they've found a way to make that work. But I think that, you know the the question isn't what else haven't we seen. The question is what can we do to put these amazing things on screen where every creator or more creators have access to it. So it's the difference between you know, getting a large-scale camera to do professional production-quality films in the 1970s, whereas now, if I want to go to, you know, a camera store and I want to start making high-production-quality visual effects stuff and put it on YouTube, it may cost me two grand, five grand, or ten grand rather than a hundred million, <laughs> you know? It, it's it, That, I think, is where the innovation really lies. I'm gonna play devil's advocate here. Um, I think you. Go ahead. I agree, um, but I think people. I mean, I talked about this with um, some other people, and a lot of people are kind of getting tired of seeing 3D animation um, because a it doesn't hold up to the test of time. Um, I mean, you can. Some of it does. Some of it does. 
but it's also what everyone else is doing. No one is experimenting with something new. Forgive me, studios, if you are. But I think people are hungry to see something different here. Oh, well, I, I don't disagree with that. I think we're just, we're, we may be saying, you know, related but different things here. Is I, okay. I would agree that, you know, there is, we're, we're getting a little exhausted of 3D. What I'm saying is that there's been some amazing stuff that gets put up on screen, but it's still very expensive to produce. I also think, yeah, if, if we could find creative ways to, you know, show something entirely new and mind-blowing on screen, there's going to be a market for that. I think we're very hungry for that. But the stuff that we're seeing on screen is pretty impressive as it is. It's just expensive to put mm -hmm. it there. Yeah, I agree. Um, what about DreamWorks? DreamWorks Animation. So Dream, DreamWorks Animation's got, so, you know, they do have um, uh, How to Train Your Dragon 2 coming out. Um, I should mention, so Fox is a distributor for Mr. Peabody and Sherman, but that is a, a DreamWorks uh, property. But it looks like in, in a lot of cases, except for home, you know, at the end of the year, uh, they are they're not taking too many risks. Um, and DreamWorks has been a historically lumpy business. It hasn't, it's one of those frustrating businesses. You want it to be great. They've produced some amazing stuff in the past. Um, my kids always loved Shrek. I like, I mean, everybody, I haven't met somebody who doesn't like Shrek. Maybe, are, are you the exception? No, I like Shrek. Yeah. So there's, you know, and, Madagascar and Kung Fu Panda. There's just been all these great properties, but it's a historically lumpy business. And there are also two people get this confused all the time. There are two sides of DreamWorks business, and they're actually two very different businesses. There's DreamWorks Studios, and then there's DreamWorks Animation. And DreamWorks Animation is a publicly traded company, and DreamWorks Studios is private and only deals with. Uh, you know, live action films and uh, it doesn't have its own, you know, di distribution. It isn't like uh, Fox or Universal or Disney where they can not only produce but distribute. DreamWorks doesn't have that kind of financial clout, nor does the, the animation side of the business. So Fox is their distribution partner. Um, so it, it has been a, a funny business, but how to drain your, train your dragon to... I think will be a, a very nice win for them. I really know almost nothing about home. So I don't know what kind of franchise they've got, you know, in development there in future years, they are looking at, I think this is one of my favorite titles I've, I've seen in a while, but they're making in 2015, a film called boo bureau of otherworldly operations. Oh yeah, That looked great. That looks, that, that sounds like something we're going to see maybe a preview of around Comic-Con time. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that. But a lot of stuff they have coming is, you know, again, working, milking the franchises, making sure the money can keep coming in. And uh, this is just, you know, the week that, that we're, we're talking about this, DreamWorks said that they would uh, create a publishing imprint. Um, and that's new for them. They have been a licensor of their properties for uh, books and uh, and comics, actually. Uh, you know, um, Ape Entertainment 
has a um, you know has the license for uh, you know you know like Kung Fu Panda comics. IDW also has a deal with them, and apparently those you know are not going to change. You know those licenses are safe. You know ICV two went out and, and asked them about it, and it looks like. You know, those licenses are safe, but I do wonder, and I'm going to end up writing about this, you know, whether or not DreamWorks is going to get into, you know, developing comics around, you know, newer, newer properties. It's, it's a possibility, um, but man, there's a lot of stuff on the shelves and shops, so that's a risk too. This is one of those studios that I like, I want to like more. They have some really good franchises, but it has been a hit or miss type of business and they don't have the same bench as a Disney or a Warner or a Fox. And so, um, it's, it's been a real lumpy stock and lumpy business over the past several years. Mm -hmm. What about foreign animated movies? Um, a lot of them, you're seeing a lot more of them and they're easier to access than they once were. Sure. But a lot of them, I mean, other than just a limited run and the more dedicated fans like you and I, not many people are seeing them. I mean, Studio Ghibli, of course, sure. but they're tied with Disney. What can a foreign animated movie do to make it big in the U.S.? God, I mean, it's so hard, but but you're not wrong. I mean, every year it does seem like at least two are nominated for uh, you know an academy award and in this case you know you just mentioned one studio ghibli's the uh the the wind rises um is that right do i have that right is nominated for an academy award yeah i think so i mean miyazaki (laughs) he's been nominated ever since he won with um i mean he's been nominated even before then i think with mononoke but okay. he's been nominated ever since he won with Spirited Away. I mean, it's kind of like Pixar and Disney. If you, you can't have the animation category without a Ghibli film these days. Yeah, yeah. But, it, you know, you also have, um, you know, films from, from France and then throughout Europe. It, it's hard. I mean, in the case of, I want to say that there's some rule-breaking way to make it make it work, but I have doubts about things like kickstarter because there's too many projects there um you don't want to say like get a big studio partner but that does seem to be the way it's working is to sign you know a distribution deal the one thing i'll say which i think is is interesting and we're going to keep seeing more of is you do have a greater interest from streaming services in finding new properties and the amount of money that's coming into these these services as it, you know to become real studios is staggering so you know for example netflix spends hundreds of millions of dollars i think their budget now is up to 300 million dollars every year on acquisition of new new properties they're not going to fund all of it but you know they do spend two billion dollars every year on certain elements of you know product acquisition. So there is sort of a play on what we used to know as direct to DVD as you know an option uh, you know through a, a Netflix. And increasingly these services are going global. Netflix certainly is. Amazon has an interest in doing this, and YouTube now just put. Uh, Susan Wojcicki, who is, she she is the, if you're unfamiliar with who she is, 
um, she was essentially the landlord <laughs> for Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the co-founders of Google. And so Google's first headquarters was in her garage. <laughs> and, and so over the course of time, uh, she became the top advertising executive at Google and really changed that company in meaningful ways. Now she is the CEO of YouTube. And so one of the great challenges of YouTube is that it's a great platform, but it's sort of become this place where the privileged few make some money and everybody else dumps stuff in and hopes to get found. And so it behooves her and Google to figure out how if you are going to make a high production quality project and agree to put it on YouTube, you need a mechanism to start earning something from that. And um, I think we're going to see YouTube explore some new business models that, you know, may allow that. So, you know, it's, I think the the classic barriers are all still there for foreign animators, but I also think the increasing nature of global streaming services and new distribution mechanisms creates something that may be very disruptive and interesting for those who are just, you know, just creative souls who might be living in Croatia, for example. They've got a killer idea and some good stuff and, you know, want to get it out there. A place like Netflix, I think, is not out of, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility. It's certainly a better time now than it was a few years ago. Yeah. What about Amazon? I mean, they're another platform people have been, uh, they, they've been buying content too lately. They have been. Amazon is another interesting one. Amazon has a different process, though, where they have, they're essentially modeling the TV pilot season. The, the advantage is they've been doing, they have specifically been funding animation, but they've been doing it as kids programming. So not necessarily adult animation or adult, you know, animated features. But still, if you've got, you know, a great kid-oriented or kid-friendly animated project, Amazon is an alternative for you. But you have to go through the pilot process. And so, you know, you submit something and then Amazon has every, it looks like they're going to do it every year. Maybe they'll shrink it to every six months. And then, you know, they're going to try to convince people who are in Prime, say, hey, come look at this. And so it doesn't really guarantee that you're going to get an audience there. But, you know, if you find your way into the group of pilots and you emerge, you, you could have something there. They're an alternative, but I think they're one that has, they've dipped their toes in the water. They haven't gone all in. And Netflix is all in and moving into foreign territories, and YouTube is all in and is already global. Hmm. It is interesting. So we're. I, it looks like 2014 is heading up to be a year when people are being quiet, but it's it could only take, a, you know, just one little spark to set something off for something to take off. Would you say that's what could happen? I think that's true, and I think this is the year we see lots of different uh, properties sort of introduced, new franchises come out that have some possibility. Um, whether or not they hit is, is tough. The, the, the dark, the bad side of this is that the bar is higher, I think, than it's ever been. The good, the good thing is, is that there's an appetite for it, but the bar is high. So I'm going back to a live action example here, but 
if you look at where TV is now, um, you really have to hit in order to make it because not because there is, um, you know, like you need a massive audience. You don't need a massive audience, but you do have to get an audience and you have to hold them. Um, so stars, for example, is funding originals and they funded black sales and that did okay. in it's first, um, you know, that's the pirate drama and it, it, it aired. Okay. It, it, it started out well enough. And then it held a little bit in its second episode, and then it dropped precipitously in its third. And I think the reason for that is you have good programming and easy access to alternatives. And once you have easy access to alternatives, you really have to come up with something great to hold my attention as a viewer, because the number of alternatives are amazing. And that's just as true in animation, I think. So... Um, we're going to see a lot of experimenting, I believe, in, in 2014. But um, I think you're going to see a lot of animators and a lot of studios trying to push this Illumination Entertainment model. So, like, what can we do to bring these production costs down and so we can experiment cheaply and then see what hits in terms of developing the next franchise? Because anybody who says they can predict the next franchise, I think is crazy. But what we know is that when you have a model that allows continuous experimentation, then I think, you know, you get really great stuff. Um, so, you know, there, the, the pieces are there for us to see some really fantastic innovations and new stories in, in animation. So I think there's reason to be very excited about what's coming in 2014, but I also think it's very different than what we're used to. In a lot of ways, that's good, but it also presents some real challenges. I'm going to be on the positive thing. Um, I think I'm looking actually forward to where animation is going this year because I'm looking forward to getting it out of the kid genre and really been focused on it more as a medium because I really think that's where animation needs to go. I, I wouldn't, yeah, I, I agree with that. Although one thing, I have the same fear for animation that I have for comics. I think we're seeing a return to it, but there was this, the turn that you're talking about happened in, see if you agree with me on this, I think it happened about 10 years ago, and then everybody wanted to do an adult mm. comic. It, well, actually, that's not true. Ever since Dark Knight Returns came out in the late 80s, I think everybody wanted to do a, you know, a major, you know, adult-oriented comic. And now I think we're starting to see a little bit of a return to that, you know, where you have the Lego Ninja Ninjago, you know, comics are out. You have what I read, you know, with my son, you know, Robert Kirkman does The Walking Dead, but he also does Super Dinosaur, which is a great comic. So I just think we're starting to see a return to that because they realize that, you know, um, there are a lot of old comics fans like me, but you have to be able to have a product that appeals to younger children and then moves them up the scale. But I also agree completely that for too long, animation has been sort of viewed as a kids only medium. And I think, you know, we have more than enough evidence to prove that that isn't true. So it would be better to see more experimentation on the adult animation side. I'd love to see more of it. I just don't want to see it go all the way. No, neither do I. Um, frankly, I enjoy 
the fa- I often enjoy the more family friendly ones than the more adult based ones because sometimes the adult based ones just go way out there. Yeah. But um, what I think um, animation um. I mean, I'm very familiar with the comics metaphor you just used. And I think right now, I mean, one of my specialties is children's comics, is that we're seeing children's comics boom. I don't see a lot of it being developed in the young adults market, though. And I think what animation can do is, you know, how... I mean, look at Twilight, Harry Potter. Those were written for a young but older audience. I mean, I think that animation has the ability to take off if they focus on that demographic. Sure. Yeah, I mean, and you're seeing it in lots of movies now. Divergent is going to be out before very long, and that is in that same niche of young adult, but we want to make it, you know, an adult enough story that adults are going to be, you know, coming to the movies to see it. But we also want to get, you know, teens, we want to get, you know, pre-teens, we want to get a wide audience for that. And so, no, I, I completely agree that there is an audience for, uh, for that type of content, that type of animated content. And uh, I'd also love to see, you know, frankly, some more stuff like uh, Flashpoint, which is, um, it, it's... It's pretty nutty. It is definitely not kids' animation, but it's great story. And, you know, I really think that animation has long since graduated, Pat, to the point where you can tell a very compelling, rich story with facial facial features, and you can show emotions, and you you can really create animated characters that people care about and so when you when you know you can do that that unleashes a huge amount of storytelling possibility and uh i don't think we've fully seen you know the industry tap that yet so that i'd agree with you i think that's exciting i know and who knows where it's going to go from here um oh my gosh i just found out i won the lottery tim you did i did i need you to tell me I want to invest in animation. What do you suggest I do this coming year and make my $5 lottery ticket $20? Well, so I'm a, I'm a business-focused investor that's looking at, you know, instead of looking at, at, at the next year, I, you know, one of the things I really care about writing for The Motley Fool is I, I hope that you know, those of us who love this, you know, this geeky stuff, um, you know, there are some real legitimate opportunities to invest and, and, you know, build up funds and retire well. And I don't think it's that hard to learn how to invest your own funds. And one of the things we like to say at The Motley Fool is nobody cares more about your money than you do. Nobody cares more about your savings than you do. So, why would you willfully hand over your own money to, you know, a, a broker? I mean, don't get me wrong. There are great brokers or great financial advisors. But I would say, you know, learn kind of the discipline of just looking at businesses. And when you figure out how to, you know, measure what really makes a business grow and profit, 
you know, over time, it becomes a heck of a lot easier to suss out what the great businesses are. And you can start with the businesses you already like because they do stuff that you like. So in this case, we're talking about animation and, you know, businesses that are in these fields where, you know, we're buying a lot of their goods. So which ones are the most interesting? Personally, and I've written about this a lot. I still, so I, and I should be full disclosure here, I own shares of both Walt Disney and Time Warner. I don't own shares of DreamWorks Animation or Fox, but I think all of those businesses are very interesting. Comcast, too. Um, I think one of the driving factors in, in these types of businesses is building real franchises. That's where I think the real juice and where the money is going to be made is in franchise development. Um, the disadvantage that a company like Fox has um, is that it doesn't really own a lot of its own, a lot of the franchises that it's bringing to the screen. Um, so they're going to profit, but they won't profit as much. Disney owns a lot of its own intellectual property. So does Warner. So I really like those two businesses over the next several years. Um, I think between those two, uh, Disney, I think, is one that I, I plan to keep for as long as I possibly can. So I think that's a business you can buy and, and stick with for a really long time. Warner is a funnier business, but I think they haven't really done nearly as much with their intellectual property as they could. They're just starting. So it's a very interesting time to take a closer look at Time Warner. And later this year... Presumably, they've been talking about this. It looks like they're going to split that stock into two. So one of them will be the publishing business, which has dragged down Time Warner historically. And then the other is going to be Warner Brothers. And that's going to include DC Entertainment. So um, that is very striking. It's a potential opportunity to be investing directly in the company that is making all this great DC animation and Warner Brothers animation and, uh, you know, that it's, it's experimenting with live TV and live action. So I think those two are the really big names. I'm cheering for DreamWorks Animation, but I think that's a pretty lumpy business right now. And I don't think they've cracked the code just yet. So of all of them we've talked about, I still really like the big two because in the end, whether it's live action or animation, franchises really drive profit. And those two have the biggest and most potentially lucrative properties, I think, intellectual property. All right. Maybe my $5 lottery winning ticket can go to 50 There you go. <laughs> wow. So, Tim, what movie are you most excited about for 2014? Does it have to so animated or live action or either? say both okay overall i am really really looking forward to uh captain america the winter soldier <laughs> i think that's going to be an amazing film i think it's going to be an amazing film and partially i'm completely biased here i read the um those original stories from Ed Brubaker and and Steve Epting and i love them so much i think it's such a great story an emotional roller coaster but very action-packed um i it looks to me like anthony and joe russo the directors have taken great care to bring that story to screen but interpret it 
in in a creative way so like they haven't just cribbed they've done something that they've made their own but they love the source material and that's always great um gosh animation i think just because i want to see how it plays i'm going to say big hero six because i i just want to see how it plays i want it to be amazing but in terms of a pure thrill ride and one that i know i'm going to enjoy watching with my kids it's probably how to train your dragon too I'm looking forward to that one as well. I've been counting down the days since I saw the first one because that's just a world I I would honestly like to live in there and have my own dragon. It would be amazing. And the the preview where, you know, he's the um he's sort of trying trying to be a dragon himself and they're like playing and they, I mean just that looks so fascinating and awesome that um, I could see that being the kind of experience where you just walk out of the theater smiling. It's, I think that is going to be one of, you know, I think that's what a movie should be. Like oh, yeah. when you when you have that reaction, you just know that, you know, the movie, the movie hit. And whether it's a tragedy or not, or whatever, not that particular movie, but just whatever the movie is, you know, that's what you want out of a film, animated, live action or not. You walk out, you're smiling because, you know, it was a great story executed well on screen. It's an impossibly, uh, it's such a hard thing to do. So I really envy filmmakers and I really loathe to criticize filmmakers because it is the creative process is so difficult. So I think there are some films that, you know, I have hated over the course of time, but I always, I never want to, I never want to be the one who is crapping on a film because that's so, it's such a hard thing to do that. I love the effort that animated or not of what a filmmaker puts into a creative endeavor. Uh, we should, always celebrate that because it's a hard thing to do it is and i mean being a writer myself i mean i'm working on a book it's hard people it so, is it's really tough but, and uh, you know no matter what creative endeavor you're doing i mean if you're writing multiple days you know stories a day like i am it's still hard you're working with the blank page and then you're putting something on there um that's tough and if you're a filmmaker, you're not only working with the blank page, putting something on there, then you're bringing that blank page up to something that people can see. And, uh, and whether you're using computers or actors and actresses, it's a crazy complicated process. It is. And what I find, I mean, I review stuff as well, is it's very easy to criticize. So yes. when you have to go back and try to think of something good, it's like, uh, it's a lot harder. It can, it can be. And you, you know, so we'll see. I think there are going to be some, some stinkers this year, but I'm going to, you know, I, as a, just in general, I prefer to celebrate the big wins than to dump on the, you know, the, the big losers. But, you know, we, it's a, it's a creative business. So you're always going to get both, you but, might. uh, you know, the best studios, getting back to just like the business of this, the best studios are pretty well insulated against big losers. I mean, it's, it's very easy to forget, you know, in the midst of Disney's record-breaking box office year, 
that they also had one of their biggest losers of all time last summer. You know what it is? Lo- wasn't it the Lone Ranger? It was the Lone Ranger. Yeah. Lone Ranger between $160 million and $190 million in losses. I know. That's I- extraordinary. Yeah. But, it, you know, in, in the greater context, when you're just swinging for the fences and when you hit some big home runs, you know, it, it ends up, the math works quite well in their favor. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but it, that kind of reminds me of what happened with, um, da, 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 what is it, Rise of the Guardians. I mean, technically that was a financial failure for DreamWorks, but the DVD sales as well with the overseas uh, box office drew, I mean, that kind of took it out of the, I don't know, the red for them, and now they're even considering making a sequel. Sure, and that is, that is fairly typical. A lot of profit in, in filmmaking, animated or otherwise, is driven in, you know, the second stage distribution. The theater, you know, the theater is where they try and make their money back. And a, the good rough cut, if you want to figure out whether or not a film was profitable, a good proxy is take the worldwide gross and compare it to double the production budget. Hmm. If, you, if you do that, then you know you'll have a sense of whether or not it, it eked out a profit. So this is you know why you have studio executives who are like, let's not you know spend 120 million on this thing because you know we don't know that we're going to be able to get 240 million dollars from grosses. You know we get 50 percent of the cut here in the U.S., but overseas, you know, in some territories like China, it's only 20 percent. So. You know, it gets tough. It does. But then again, you never know what could become a call classic later in years. And right. And more money. I mean, Tron. Yeah. It, and we want to look at the Jim Henson properties. I mean, Labyrinth and Jar Crystal. Well, we haven't really seen much done with those other than comic books. But there's potential there. Sure. Sure. Yeah, there's there's lots of stuff that, that we could see. So, you know, I, I like... Um, I like the business. I think it's a very good time to be in, in this business. I think it's a really good time to be a fan. And I also think it's, um, I hope, kind of just like my my side mission, I really, I want people who are investors in things like this to care about the stuff I love. And then I want my fellow geeks and nerds to be like, don't just spend all your cash on comics and at the movies recognize that you know this stuff that you love and you know so well can be a vehicle for you to start thinking about funding your retirement or you know saving up i mean if you want to make a comic or a film someday man why not start getting a saving program together learning about just some basic principles of investing and then you know, maybe when you're you're 30 and you're like, you know what, I'm going to take like six months, use this fund I built, and I'm going to make my film, I'm going to make my dream come true. Fantastic. You know, who says that you have to borrow from, you beg, borrow, and steal to get your film made? You know, just start learning some basic financial principles and, uh, you know, take, take control of it yourself. I, I just hope that that happens. Um, I would love to see it happen because I really believe that. I believe that, you know, um, I have three kids. I want them to grow up to be financially independent. I think they're, you know, the, 
the worst thing that's on TV or commercials that try to convince us that, you know, the process of investing our own dollars is like, you know, a doctor who, you know, like doing surgery on yourself. It's not. You know, that's a great myth and it's a great way to take money out of people's pockets. And I don't really like that too much. So I speak out against it as much as I can. <laughs> hey, I agree with you there. So I think all in all we can summarize that 2014 and investments is just going to be, you know, is going to be in the it's going to be a grab bag, but it's probably going to be a look at a very successful year, more or less. I hope so. I hope so. But I think over the I think this is an area, you know, looking at multi years, not just you know the year ahead, but the next ten years or even the next twenty years. I think. The, the changing nature of entertainment, the way it's being disrupted, distribution, the technology that's coming that helps, you know, great creators make new stuff. I think all of that represents a real opportunity and not just for the studios. I think it's genuinely an opportunity for enterprising, you know, everyday people who want to save and, and put some money away. There's some opportunity to make some real money there. And then in terms of creators, um, I think, you know, I, what I love most about disruption is it means you get access to things that make, you know, creative endeavors easier to make. And so as fans, we just get treated to these crazy things we never thought were possible. That's, a, that's maybe one of the most joyous things of observing the business is that you kind of get to see people put their passions out and some of it's just extraordinary hmm. you put it so eloquently <laughs> well i like it i like it i think i you know i'm not just an investor in this stuff i'm a huge fan of it and i think that's better you know, when you're investing in, you know, why would you want to invest in anything that you hated? You know, that's that sounds like a recipe for disaster. You won't be successful at it. You know, instead, look at the things that you love. Maybe there are some amazing investment opportunities there. We just have to wait and see. Yep. All right. Well, I think we have given people a very good idea of what to expect for 2014. But... I still have one final question to ask you that I ask everybody. Okay, go. Do you, Tim Byers, have anything to declare? Do I have anything to declare? You have anything to declare? Here's what I will I will declare. I will declare that Guardians of the Galaxy will be the surprise hit of the summer. I forget what the naysayers are, are saying about CGI raccoons. I think it's going to be a big winner and people are going to love it. Awesome. And I think Big Hero 6 is going to give us all a surprise. Man, I, I so hope you're right. I so hope you're right. I'm really rooting for that one. Me too, because it's something new. And yes. I am desperate for a new and exciting animated film. Yeah, I'm with you. That's great. But let's let's uh let's hope both of those things come through. Love it. Yeah. So, Tim, I want to thank you so much for taking your the time and give us a new 
scope and perspective on the animation industry that I'm sure a lot of our fans haven't really even considered yet. Well, I hope so. I mean, and for, for more stuff, I hope, uh, you know, you can find me on Twitter at, at Mile High Fool, like where you found me. So if anybody wants to tweet at me and either tell me they liked it or they hated it or it was crazy or they have questions, I am completely happy to take the conversation further. Sounds that I'm, I'm a fan, so we can always talk stuff. And did you hear that, everyone? You have your own personal investment guru waiting to give you some hints and tips on how to wisely invest your money in geek culture. Absolutely. Right. Is that a good way to advertise yeah. you? I, well, I mean, yeah. I, I am always happy to talk about stocks, investing, geeky stuff. It's, it's my favorite thing to do. So absolutely. Find me online. I'll be happy to talk. Great. And I'll be sure to take advantage of, and pick your brain in the future. And you know what? On a future episode, would you like to come back and talk about more to do with animation and money? Absolutely. Great. Yeah, let's keep in touch. We I mean, will. there's always there's always something to talk about. So, you know, I'm happy to do it. to the bottom of the tune in talk podcast i hope you listened loved and learned a lot about the movies that will be coming out in 2015 and i hope that you make your own predictions and share them with me tim thank you so much for coming on to the show again and let's schedule a similar meeting for 2016 but tim you say minions are going to win i say inside out my heart belongs to pixar and, well, practically every other animation studio. Like all guests who appear on my show, Tim is an ultra-cool dude, and he always has ultra-cool projects going on. At the beginning of this interview, he mentioned his website, fullbleed.net, and I will post that link as well as his contact information and a few other interesting tidbits about Tim in the show notes, which can be located at www.tunedtalk.com as well as my favorite news source for all things geek, FanboyNation.com. Fanboy Nation is your all-inclusive source for all things related to the geek fandom. Comic books, wrestling, TV, movies, anything that is part of pop culture, you're going to find news on that there. Again, that is FanboyNation.com. I also review comics as well as interview comic creators for FanboyNation.com. So if you are interested in that aspect of my writing career, head on over and read my reviews as well as other sort of interviews. If you are interested in connecting with me, your host, Whitney Grace, you can always tweet me at Story Sequence or at TuneIn Talk, which is the official Twitter channel for the TuneIn Talk podcast. Or if you want to go some old-fashioned electronic email, drop me a line at TuneInTalk at gmail.com. You can also find us at Facebook, and if you are interested in supporting the show, there are a few easy ways you can do that. My favorite is, of course, you can leave us a review and rating on Stitcher Radio or in iTunes. Leaving this is a free and easy way to support the show, and it also tells others how you think about this podcast, and frankly, 
whenever I see a star rating or a written review, it always makes me smile. And as I say, a smile is always a great thing to pass on. Do not forget to check out Scrivener if you are writing a novel at the moment. But if you would rather listen to a novel or another book instead of having to write one yourself, which give or take is one of my favorite things to do at all time, why don't you check out audible.com, one of the largest listening libraries on the available on the internet. And there's an option for a free 30-day trial. I will also put that in the show notes as well. So that brings us to the end of another episode of the Tune and Talk podcast. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening. And as always, keep on smiling. And now, if you'll excuse me, I have to go and finish chapter three. And once again, and as always for the next year and a half, I am going to be translating some German. Ah, Deutsch ist sehr gut. I'll see you in episode 9, everyone. Tschüss!